Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here and to see a number of friends and friendly faces and to also meet some new ones. My name is Chris Saladay. Uh, Pastor David asked me to come this morning and to bring God's word to you, and I'm grateful for that privilege. Um, like I said, I'm grateful to know many of you here. Uh, I'm also grateful for Pastor David's friendship over the last 16 years, uh, not just David, but his whole family. It extends back to his days when he was at Stonehill Church, a few miles down the road where I am a member and I actually serve as well. I give thanks to God for the unity that we have in the gospel together. And I also serve as a campus minister. Maybe if some of you have read the bio, I serve as a campus minister with Princeton Christian Fellowship. Uh, and my wife and I have been doing that for the last 16 years. And I know this church is a home to a lot of students, college students in the area. So I just, I'm just so happy and thrilled about that, that this church has that vision for students during their time at college. And I also thankful that I could be here to open up God's word with you this morning. Last week, you began a series on the miracles of Jesus. You started with John chapter 2, when Jesus changes water into wine at a wedding. And he demonstrates the grace and the joy that he brings to us as Savior, as our bridegroom. And as Pastor David said that great wedding to come between Jesus and his bride or the church, that is the only perfect wedding. All other weddings are imperfect pointers to that one. And my wedding definitely attests to that as Danielle and I ran out of gas on our wedding day 10 minutes after we left our reception. What a way to start married life together, stranded on the side of a road in my tux and in her wedding gown, 98-degree June day. And this is before the era of cell phones, so we really were stranded. This morning we come to Mark chapter 2. And you can turn there in the Blue Bibles. This is page 1065, Mark chapter 2. It's an account given to us where Jesus miraculously heals a paralytic. So listen as I read God's word to us this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing, him, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Definition of surprise. It's unexpected, it's according to Google, <laughs> an unexpected or astonishing event, fact, or thing. When Danielle, my wife, was 15 years old, she and her family went to Idaho for a family vacation. They arrived at their hotel and they immediately went into the lobby. And Danielle, when she was walking across the large lobby area, Danielle's brother, Rob, he happened to be on the far side of the lobby. And while she was walking across, Rob was wildly moving his arms and pointing in the direction where Danielle was walking. But Danielle had no idea what Rob was trying to say or do. So she kept looking at him, not looking where she was going, saying, what, what? And Rob just kept pointing and Danielle just kept saying, what? And walking until all of a sudden, boom, she hit something very, very large and then fell back onto the floor, onto her back. Stunned, Danielle looked up and standing over her, extending a very large hand down to pick her up off the floor was none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Some of you older people here like me, Danielle bumped into the Terminator and the Terminator won. In case you don't know who I'm talking about, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was Mr. Universe, a former bodybuilder. He was the Terminator in those popular 1990 films, and he eventually served as the governor of California. Anyway, Mr. Schwarzenegger picked up Danielle, apologized, bought her a Coke at the hotel bar, and Rob thought this was like the best family vacation ever. <laughs> but that is what you call a surprise. It's an unexpected, astonishing event. And in the passage that I just read, there are lots of surprises packed Packed in this hour where Jesus heals the paralytic, as recorded by Mark in chapter 2. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 12, and consider that word that Mark uses, amazed. It's a word that includes the idea of surprise, the idea of wonder and astonishment. See, the crowds came to hear Jesus preach and to teach, and eventually, as is often the case with Jesus, Jesus ends up saying and doing things that amaze them and surprise them. So this morning, I want to highlight a few of these surprises in Mark chapter 2. And I want to connect each of these surprises to us today so that you might be encouraged and challenged wherever you are in your relationship with God. So the first surprise, it's the dogged persistence of the friends. So look at verses one to four again. Jesus is there. He's preaching in somebody's house. It's packed. Every square foot is taken up by a body. 
it's like it's like a sleepover birthday party with a lot of like kids on the floor. If this happened today, people would be texting and, and posting news that Jesus was back in town. So now come crowds be trying to get up close to get a selfie. Right. This is what would be happening. But even the overflow section, the area outside of the door, even that is full and there's no room there. But in all of this, Jesus popularity causes a significant problem. Now, some people can't hear him. They can't get to them. Get, get to him. The paralytic can't get to Jesus. So let's consider the paralytic for a moment. Like, today we have amazing resources, but he didn't have those. And, and so being paralyzed in this time, in the first century, it would have meant that this man was completely dependent on the care of others. Men, like the paralytic, there would have been an expectation on him to provide for his family, but he wouldn't have been able to do that. He couldn't work. He wouldn't have been able to move around much at all. Life would have been very, very hard for him. And now he can't get to Jesus because the house is too full and because he can't walk. And now enter the four friends. We don't know their names, but certainly we would all agree that these four friends must be loving and devoted. It takes all four of them to carry their friend on his mat. I have no idea how far they went. The other day, my 10-year-old daughter, Laura, she asked me, Daddy, can I just have a piggyback? And I was like, you know what? It's been a few years, but you know what? Why not? So I put her on my back, and I walked about 200 yards, and I was like, Laura, we're done. My quads are burning. (laughs) These men carry their friend. I have no idea how far. He's a grown man. They hoist him onto the roof. I would have loved to have seen how they did that. They dig a hole through the roof. I'm really glad it wasn't my house. And then they lower him down to Jesus' feet. That's what you call dogged persistence and determination. And think about this. Were it not for these four friends, the paralytic never would have made his way to Jesus. And this story would not be in our Bible. It was the four friends. And so the lesson that connects to us, do not give up in bringing others to Jesus. The persistent example of these friends should challenge us and stop us to ask ourselves, what kind of friend are we? Are we working hard to love and serve others? Are we letting others serve us in our time of need? Are we dedicated? Are we determined to bring our friends, to bring our loved ones to Jesus? using all kinds of creative thinking and taking the initiative to do that? Do we give up too easily on people when it comes to loving them or bringing them to Jesus? Being persistent, not giving up, it is so hard. And and this past week, God encouraged me in this very way, in this very lesson. I have a friend, as a friend that I've shared the gospel with, Many, many times for several years. And this friend, he has asked me some of the most difficult questions about the meaning of life, about God, about faith, about the Bible. And we've had intense, amazing conversations. And I'll admit it, though, sometimes after I've had these conversations, I just think to myself, God, I've shared everything I possibly can What else can I do? I really think it's going to take something big, like the parting of the Red Sea or or a talking donkey. Something big to bring this friend from doubt to faith. 
And my friend moved away last year, and we talked a lot less. But last week, he was in town. And he insisted that we needed to see each other, and I said, sure. And within a few minutes of talking, he said to me, I now believe. And I smiled, and I praised God. I also smiled because it didn't have anything to do with me. I mean, I planted some seeds, but I wasn't a part of this happening in terms of immediately. And it was such a powerful reminder that God is always at work in people's lives, and he never gives up. He always persists. And you know what God used to bring my friend to faith? Two other friends and just the faithful preaching of his word. You know, these are very ordinary things, but these ordinary things become extraordinary things in the hand of God and through the Spirit. So what about your friends, your family members? Do you ever think that they're just they're beyond God's ability to reach? Don't give up in bringing them to Jesus. Pray for them with faith. Talk to them with patience and love. Trust that God is up to something in their life by his powerful spirit. I am here today as a follower of Christ because when I was a teenager, I had four friends. What a coincidence. Four friends in Mark 2, and I had four friends, Matt, Jeff, Keith, and Ted, who they persisted in trying to bring me to a place where I too could see the beauty and the grace of Christ. And through their persistence, I eventually believed as well. It happened. So the second surprise It's the corporate faith of these five friends. Look again at the text. Look at verse 5. As the four friends are lowering the the paralytic down, their friend down through the roof, and the text says, when Jesus saw their faith. Jesus sees the faith, not just of the paralytic, but the faith of all five people. And it's in that moment, he says to the one, son, your sins are forgiven. But that little pronoun, there, that's a surprise. It's not his faith, singular, but it's their faith, plural. Faith is never an individual thing alone. Yes, as individuals, we have to each decide if we believe in God and if Jesus is Lord and Savior of all. And from one perspective, faith is like walking through a turnstile at a concert or a sporting event. You know, those things you go through, only one person can fit through that thing at a time, right? Faith is like that. You have to go through alone. Nobody can go through for you, and nobody can go through with you. But our individual personal faith is profoundly impacted by the community around us. Faith is a community project. So for the lesson for us is if you want to grow in your faith in Christ, being here today, I know you do, then you need each other. And others need you. The five friends, they're a picture for us of how our brothers and sisters in Christ are essential in bringing us to the faith and then keeping us in the faith and growing us in the faith. None of us can follow Jesus alone. We need others if we're going to grow as God wants us to grow. And I could give a lot of personal examples in my own life, but I'll give you one from just this past winter, a few months ago. Some family friends invited our family over for a breakfast one Saturday morning, just a simple meal, simple hospitality around pancakes and coffee. And and personally, at the time, I was in a place where I was just generally discouraged, unmotivated, tired. And it just so happened that our friends, our, our good friends, they had a guest, somebody I'd never met before. It was their sister. Her name was Jill. 
And Jill ended up saying some things to both me and Danielle that really, really touched us. That encouraged us to keep living for Christ in our family, in our jobs, in our community. And that is exactly what I needed in that moment. And it reminded me that I can... I cannot persevere. I cannot keep growing in Christ on my own. I need others. We all need others, and others need us. And in that moment over sticky pancakes and cold coffee, God used that simple hospitality of friends and somebody that I had never met before to remind me of that really critical lesson. God delights to use us and encourage us in the faith. Are you allowing God to do that? Are you making yourself available for that and looking for ways for God to use the gifts that he's given you to bring encouragement into others' lives? I'm in my fifth decade of life, and one of my goals for this decade is to memorize the New Testament epistle of 2 Timothy. I'm slowly making my way to the finish line. I have four years left to do it. Anyway, this lesson, it stands out in the epistle. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The idea is is that God's word is the primary source of our faith, what we believe, and our practice, like how we live, what we do. And that our faith, it's grounded on something objective and true, God's faithfulness, God's word. But then consider what Paul says two verses prior to that. This is 2 Timothy 3.14. He says, but as for you, young Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, and it's right here, because you know those from whom you've learned it. Yes, Paul points Timothy not just to the word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 3, 16, but he also points Timothy to the people who are living out the word of God around him in real time. Because you know from those from whom you've learned it. Our faith is grounded on the faithfulness of God and his word, and our faith grows and is nurtured when we see it lived out in community by others. That's what Paul's reminder to Timothy is, and that's one of the lessons of Mark 2. We need each other for our faith in Christ to grow. A third surprise. Jesus, he overlooks the paralytic's physical need, which is for healing, and instead addresses his greater need, for forgiveness. So look again at verse 5, where Jesus announces, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And if I was one of those four friends, this is what you'd have heard me say from up there on the rooftop. Um, Jesus, I just want to respectfully say that thank you, but we actually dug through the roof and we came here today so that this friend could be healed. But thank you for the forgiveness, but could you heal him now? And I have to imagine the friends were surprised with, you know, this, this uh, change of events or the, this change in expectations as well. See, Jesus looks beyond this man's physical need. He could clearly see it. But he sees the greater need. He sees that this man needs forgiveness with God. Jesus shows us that even though our circumstances matter, there's something more necessary more fundamental to our flourishing than physical health and material well-being. 
I mean, think about it. Even if Jesus enables this paralytic to walk, if he lives a long life, he could work for a while, go places, acquire things, but at some point he'll unlikely be, he'll likely be unable to walk again, maybe from disease, maybe from aging. And this is true of everybody that Jesus heals. Even Jesus' dear friend Lazarus that he raises from the dead, one day he goes on to die again. So as creatures, we have a need that is greater than the daily bread that we pray for. And we just prayed for that, that God would give us our daily bread as provider. But we have a need for like our ultimate healing, for forgiveness. Our physical life, our external circumstances, they are important. They matter to God. And Jesus certainly communicates this through his healings and the miraculous feedings that, that he cares about people and their physical life. But they are not the primary. They're not the ultimate. They ultimately will not satisfy our deepest longings. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's saying that the main problem with a person's life is not his or her suffering, but it's their sin. And the lesson for us is that one of our ultimate and greatest needs in life is forgiveness with God. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad deeds that we do or the bad thoughts that we think. Sin is, it's fundamentally ignoring God in this world and living without reference to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I will live my life. And Jesus says, this is the main problem from which everything else, all the bad deeds, all the bad thoughts flow. I just read about eight scientists, four men and four women, who decided to live together in a glass-enclosed biosphere. And it was a two-year-long isolation experiment that they volunteered for. And within the first few months of this experiment, there was conflict and misunderstanding, and these eight scientists split up into two groups of four. And by the end of the, and they were trapped for two years. <laughs> and by the end of the experiment, in the final months, neither side would speak to each other or recognize each other. So eight highly motivated, highly educated adults walled off from each other by a lack of forgiveness, refusing to recognize each other's existence. And this is a picture of us with God. Our great sin is that we live in this world that God has created, his biosphere. He's given us life. He has sustained us, but we just don't want to recognize him. We'd rather just live in this nice world that he's created on our own without reference to him, just independent. And we have walled God off with our own selfishness and our own sin. And now our greatest need is for that wall to be torn down, for forgiveness to come. And this is Jesus' point. The most important thing that we need is to be made right with God. As one commentator put it, the only disease that can really kill us is sin. And the one medicine that will really cure us is forgiveness. To be made right with God is the real miracle. And I just think this is so hard for us in America. We are, we're so focused on the stuff that we have or the stuff that we don't have or the job or the relationship 
or the success or the health or the body that we have or don't have. See, for the paralytic, making him walk again, it's not enough for his true healing. He, he and his friends are likely thinking, if he could just walk, then all of his problems would be solved and he'd be happy. And we do the same thing. We think, if only I could have this or, or that, then, I, then I'd be fulfilled. I'd be content. And when we do this, we're, we're building our identity around something other than Jesus, other than the gospel, other than forgiveness. We're looking to that thing to be our savior, that thing to be our source of fulfillment. And Jesus says, no, there is something more lasting. And, and, and you need this. You need this for deep rest in your soul. It is healing from your sin and peace with God through me. And when you have it, nothing can take it away. So don't miss out on this. Don't value other things more highly than the forgiveness that is offered to us in Christ. And then when you have it, when you know you have it, just remind yourself how amazing it is. The friend's response is really interesting. You see how they react to, to Jesus' pronouncement, son, your sins are forgiven. They don't say anything. They submit. They don't complain. They listen. There is a group of people that complains, and it's the religious leaders. And this leads us to another surprise, which is the shock of the religious leaders. Verses 6 and 7. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, this upsets the religious leaders. Because they think nobody can talk like that. Who does he think he is? Only God can make that kind of pronouncement. And these leaders are right. Jesus can't. He should not talk like this. Unless he really is God. A, a number of teachers have illustrated this point. Um, I think there's even something in, in, your, in your bulletin along these lines. But let me, let me just illustrate just how shocking this is, how amazing this is, how surprising this is by, by personalizing it. I have, I have, I'm the oldest of three, so I have two siblings, brother Jeff and a sister Melissa. And my mom tells me that we had our share of fights growing up. I don't remember them, but I'll take her word for it. <laughs> Imagine that Jeff, my brother, says some really mean things to Melissa and then hits her and then gives her a clump of dirt and convinces her that this is chocolate. Why don't you go ahead and eat it? And then takes one of her favorite stuffed animals and shoves it in the toilet. I'm not saying that any of this stuff happened when we grew up. I'm just, this is all hypothetical right now, okay? Anyway, there's Melissa. She is clearly wronged and wounded by the selfishness and sins of my brother. Now, imagine I step into the middle of this as big brother, and I say something along the lines like, okay, Jeff, you've done some really hurtful things here, but you know what? I forgive you. <laughs> You're laughing, right? Because it's like my sister would be, she would say, Chris, this is not for you to say anything about. This is between me and Jeff, right? You stay out of it. Like it's for me to forgive, not you. And only the person who has been sinned against stands in a position to forgive. We get that. Nobody else can do that. And so come back to what Jesus says and what the religious leaders are squabbling about. When Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, he is saying your sins have primarily been against me. Yes, I realize you've sinned against others, but I'm the one who stands 
behind everybody you've sinned against. I am the one who's created you, who's given you life, and to whom you must give an account. And now I'm the one who holds the keys to whether or not you are forgiven. Only God can say this. And this is why the religious leaders conclude Jesus is speaking blasphemy. And they'd be right, except Jesus is God in the flesh, and he can say things like this. This is an incredible surprise that God came to the earth that he created in the person of Jesus Christ. We just sang this, king of all days, oh, so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above, humbly you came to the earth you created, and all for love's sake became poor. And actually, the next line of that song is what? Here I am to worship. And that's the lesson. Jesus is more than a human being here to amaze us. He is God in the flesh here to save us, worthy of our faith, worthy of our worship. Jesus angers the religious leaders. And actually, if you read through Mark's gospel, guess by Mark chapter 3, verse 6, just a few verses away from where we're at right now, the religious leaders conspire. They say, you know what? Jesus has to die. We need to kill him. He's too dangerous. That's how quickly they make up their minds. And with the crowds, what does Jesus do? He amazes them. But Jesus, he didn't come here just to amaze us. He came here so that we might actually see who he is, God in the flesh, Savior of the world, and put our faith in him. This is why Jesus sometimes, he doesn't do miraculous things for people. Because the people are treating him like a magician. Like, could you please do that again? Wow. Keep amazing us. Because Jesus, he wants people to go from, like, look at what he can do. From that to look at who he is. Jesus is more than another human being, more than an influential teacher, more than a charismatic leader. He is God in the flesh, worthy of our life, our trust, and our worship. And one final surprise. Jesus does a miraculous act. He he physically heals this man in order to show, to prove, to demonstrate to everybody that he really does have the authority to forgive sins, just like he says. I I love Jesus' question in verse 9. Why don't you look at verse 9? He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Is that easier to say? Or is it easier to say, get up? Take up your mat and walk. And think about that question. Actually, commentators, they don't know the answer to that question. (laughs) Because on one hand, you know, to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, it's actually really easy to say. And the thing is, is that when you say that, nobody can know if you actually have the authority to do that or not. We have no way of looking into heaven and God's book to see, like, is that person, are their sins really forgiven or not? There's just, it's in a sense, it's easy to say. It's hard to say to somebody, get up, pick up your mat and walk, because if that doesn't happen, you look like a fool and you have no authority, you have no power to do that, right? But on the other hand, I mean, that's one way to look at it. On the other hand, for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, it's incredibly hard for him to say, because when Jesus says that, he knows that for that to be a reality, For that to be true in the life of that man, in your life, in my life, Jesus has to die. And in that sense, it is really, 
really hard for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. So wherever you land on how to answer this question, here's the point. Jesus unquestionably has the authority to say to that man and to all of us, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because his miraculous power in the physical realm that he so clearly demonstrates by raising the man up, it proves that he likewise has authority and power in the spiritual realm to say your sins are forgiven and that it is true. Verse 10, I think, is the highlight of this passage. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You could underline those words. So that you may know, Jesus says. And the lesson for us is we can have great confidence that Jesus has the authority to forgive us. Every step the paralytic would have taken after this moment would have reminded him, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Because he was raised physically, and that is a powerful reminder for him personally that he is forgiven because Jesus said so. He had a miracle for him tied so closely to his forgiveness. He could have confidence that his sins were truly forgiven. And I want you to see, do you realize that for us, our forgiveness, it too is tied to a miraculous act. It's not the raising of that paralytic. The miraculous act that our forgiveness is tied to is Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really does have the authority to forgive us, just as he said. First Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, but he has, but if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And we are to be pitied more than all people. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we can be forgiven. It is a gracious gift from God that we receive by faith. And once we receive that gift, we can have confidence that we are indeed forgiven. So do you have that confidence you might have things that you really regret, certain patterns that you keep slipping back into, and you're so discouraged, weighed down. And on certain days you might think, how can God forgive me? But on the basis of Jesus' resurrection and on your faith in him, God forgives you. Your faith can confidently rest in the one who is alive forevermore. And some of you have that confidence, and good, but don't let that confidence lead you to presumption, that now I can live my life as any way that I please, and God will just forgive me no matter what. No, that is not the gospel. 
Romans 6, 4, just as we were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, what? Now we too might walk in newness of life. The paralytic was healed and forgiven so that he could literally and figuratively walk in the new life that he had been graciously given by Christ. We are forgiven so that we too would walk in the new life that we have in Christ. How foolish it would have been if the paralytic, after having been raised and healed, if he then just went back and just laid on his mat and lived the rest of his new life lying on that mat. How foolish. And we would all say, no, that's not why Christ healed you. That's a picture of us when we do not live out our new life in Christ. Our new life in Christ includes, includes being persistent and loving others and being witnesses for Christ. It includes using the gifts that God has given us to build up his people. It includes treasuring the forgiveness that we've been given in Christ and, and, and in turn forgiving others with the forgiveness that we've received in Christ it includes living for Christ in all that we do and say because he is God and Savior and Lord, worthy of our faith and life. I just, I'm so grateful that we sang this song together. Perfect song. Arise, my soul, arise. Perfect for the paralytic, perfect for us, that we would arise and continue to walk in the new life that we've been given in Christ. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Arise, 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 my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. And to go and to live for Christ in all that you do. May God give us greater confidence in what Christ has done for us, that we have complete forgiveness through him. And by his spirit, may we arise and walk, faithfully walk in the new and gracious life that we've been given in Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.